Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back to Francis Tavern. Uh, this is our first uh, in-person event of, I want to say, 18 months inside of this uh, establishment. So thank you so much for coming. And thank you so much for everybody online. I'm going to look right into the camera and thank you uh, for coming virtually to our lecture. Uh, we've had really phenomenal success. Uh, you know, everything this uh, pandemic has brought upon us, what it has brought is a national audience to our museum because we are now broadcasting on the internet uh, where people all the way from California, uh, across the world, uh, from California to New York can come and listen to us. And so we're so happy that that has brought, um, you know, new faces, new names, uh, new engagement to us. But, you know, being here in person in, the in this historic site is what we're all about here. We really appreciate you coming back and participating in this program. Uh, my name is Scott Dwyer. I'm director for Sons of the Revolution, the state of New York, and it's Francis Tavern Museum. Um, I want to uh, welcome, first and foremost, uh, Rick Murphy, uh, who is our speaker today, uh, author, historian. Uh, thank you so much for coming all the way up to New York for this event. We really appreciate it. Um, and Sons members. So we're, we're really super excited for you to be here, um, especially when it involves one of our members to talk about uh, his family's experience uh, all through from the Revolutionary War up until today. So thank you so much for being here. Um, you know, just uh, a standard uh, piece for uh, the rest of the program. Uh, there will be a Q&A following the lecture. Um, so if you are here in person and have any questions, uh, please write them down on the paper uh, provided and we will come up and pick those up from you. Uh, and we'll include those at the end of the lecture. Um, if you're participating virtually, uh, please put your questions in the chat uh, or Q&A and we will have Rick answer those as well um, as time permits. Um, finally, just the standard uh, piece that we provide for all of our lectures. Um, uh, the views of the author uh, do not necessarily re represent uh, Francis Tavern Museum or the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York. Um, but thank you so much uh, for coming and let me uh, introduce Peter Hine, uh, president of Sons of the Revolution. Thank you very much, uh, Scott. Uh, our group is the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York. We're part of the General Society of Sons of the Revolution. And it is our honor and privilege to introduce this evening a member of our society, Rick Murphy, to speak about the role his ancestors, members of the Cornwall and Murphy family played in America's wars, in particular, the American Revolutionary War. Rick has written and published four books. He has a fifth book on the way, which we may get a preview of. And um, this is one of the four books, uh, Freedom Road, uh, which uh, uh, is available on Amazon as are Rick's other books. And I commend them to your attention. Uh, Freedom Road discusses the role members of the Cornwall and Murphy family played in the revolution against the backdrop of the overall events. Uh, Rick's ancestors served in the New York, Massachusetts, and New York, uh, North Carolina regiments. And I'm also pleased that we have here tonight members of the Cornwall family, uh, Harold Cornwall, uh, Quincy, and Vicki uh, Williams Cornwall. So thank you for joining us this evening. Because we are sons of the revolution and we're joined this evening with many of our friends from the daughters of the American Revolution, uh, Rick is going to be highlighting tonight uh, his family's service in the American Revolution in particular. Uh, but Rick's books chronicle the lives and the contributions of members of his family going back to the earliest days of 
colonial presence in the Americas. And Rick's books also tell the story of the service of members of his family in virtually every war since the American Revolution. Uh, most recently, the service of Rick's uncle, Rear Admiral Larry Chambers, who commanded an aircraft carrier in the Vietnam War, uh, the subject of one of Rick's books. Uh, Rick is an acclaimed historian, scholar, and lecturer. Uh, more details about Rick can be found by going to the link in the invitation for this program. If you click on that link, it'll take you to uh, Amazon page, which has uh, uh, pictures and information about all four of Rick's books, as well as more information on Rick's background. So I encourage everyone to do that. And with that, uh, please uh, welcome uh, Rick Murphy. Thank you, Peter, for that warm introduction. Compatriots, thank you for your kind invitation. And family and friends, thank you for your indulgence for the next 40 to 45 minutes. It is truly an honor to be in this building, this room, and to stand on this floor, the same where my ancestors would be very proud to know that I am here this evening because this is the same building that the commander in chief, George Washington, commanded the Continental Army and the state militias, which my family was part of. I have been asked to do a number of things this evening. So while it may seem that I'm kind of going all over the map this evening, I hope that I bring it all together. I was asked, how did this all start for me, this genealogical journey? Introduce my patriot ancestors, living American history, which I did from a small child, the forgotten patriots and the Revolutionary War legacy. And I wanna talk about the forgotten patriots. Now, those of you who are with the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, are probably all so familiar with the book called The Forgotten Patriots. And that book is a book that talked about the, at that point in time, the over 6,500 men of uh, African descent, Americans of African descent, who served in the Revolutionary War. And that's important to highlight and understand those men. But what's interesting in my particular family, my family served in the French and Indian War, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War I and II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. What an honor it is to know that I have a legacy of men who served our country patriotically. But I first want to introduce you to my Revolutionary War ancestors, Americans of European descent. Captain Charles Gatliff, Lieutenant James Felix McGuire, Nathan Briggs, William Utley, and Samuel Cornwell. So those of you who are in the room or online, if any of you have those ancestors as well, we're cousins and nice to meet you. <laughs> but let me also introduce you to Americans of African descent with whom I descend from. Caesar Russell, Cuffey Grandison, Edward Gowen, Benjamin Brooker, Thomas Brandon, and Cuffey Townsend. 
What an impressive group of men to know Americans of African descent who served in the Revolutionary War, but that's just my Cornwall line. Now, what I want to do, and again, I've been asked to do many things this evening, is in book one, I want to tell you about how I grew up and how I lived American history for better or for worse. And my parents were determined that as a very young age, living in Boston, because that's where I grew up in a suburb outside the city, that every weekend, if we did not go to my grandparents' house, we were going to learn American history. Now, although we lived outside the city, we always started at the Massachusetts State House. And it's so interesting, if you see that building in the upper right-hand corner, I was in an appointed position, gubernatorial appointed position, and that's the building that I worked in. And how interesting it was that I worked in a building affiliated with the State House, something that I unfortunately went to almost every single weekend. I almost knew what was going to happen before it happened. And one of the things that we always went to was the freedom, okay, let's see, I think I hit the wrong thing. We always walked the Freedom Trail. And those of you who have gone to Boston have walked that Freedom Trail many times. And I can't tell you how many times I walked that Freedom Trail. But oftentimes we started at a circle. And the circle we started at was the circle that had the date March 5th, 1770. And it was a very important circle for us in American history because my parents would always tell us that's where Black history started. And that particular circle that we went to, which is outside of the old state house, had a very symbolic reason to it. And that particular circle represented where the Boston massacre took place on March 5th, 1770. And the first man to die for democracy in the American Revolution was a man called Crispus Attucks, a man of color. Now, the reason why this particular circle, particularly for my father, had so much interest in, because Crispus Attucks came from a town west of Massachusetts called Framingham. And that's the same town that my father grew up in. So they were determined we were going to know everything about Boston, Massachusetts, and US history. I can't tell you how many times I went to the site of the Boston Tea Party. Now, so if anyone questions, do I know the causes of the American Revolution? I don't think I was more than four years old and I can recite every location in the city. And my father who grew up in Framingham, the part of Framingham that he grew up in was not too far from the battles of Lexington and Concord. So again, I was entrenched everything dealing with Massachusetts history, Boston history, but the Revolutionary War history. And what you need to understand that the Battle of Bunker Hill, oh my Lord, my maternal grandmother would talk about the Battle of Bunker Hill all the time. And I'm gonna come to that in a minute. But anything dealing with the Revolutionary War, they were determined that we were going to get A's on our history class because we went to all of these sites over and over again. Now this particular picture, the death of General Warren at the Battle of Bunker Hill had particular meaning to my grandmother. This particular picture is at the Museum of Fine Arts. And there weren't too many women of African descent who were patrons of the Museum of Fine Arts, but my grandmother was. 
And there was a very particular reason why my father's mother belonged to it. And if you look at this picture in the bottom right-hand corner, you will see Peter Seelum. But what you will also see is a gentleman who's dead, who was killed lying on the ground at the death of Captain General Warren. And my grandmother always said that the man in the bottom left-hand corner was a relative of hers. And she would obviously tell this story over and over and over again. And she would take all of her society friends to see this particular picture. Now, there was a reason why this man on the bottom left-hand corner had a significance to my grandmother. And that's because Elijah Melton, my grandmother's maiden name was Melton, born in North Carolina, and so wasn't Elijah Melton. He was buried one of 12 men at the foot of Bunker Hill. And my grandmother would always say that he was buried there because he was killed on Bunker Hill. But when I became older, I did research and God bless my grandmother, she was absolutely right because his name, the tombstone is there that has his name, but he didn't die in battle, he died from the smallpox according to his military record. Now, as I indicated, I understand the root causes for the war of independence. So no one needs to ask me what I think were the causes of the war of independence because I, as I indicated to you, I've been living and breathing this stuff since I was four years old. I understand it was a result of the French and Indian War, the need to pay for wartime debt. I understand it was resentment over Parliament's colonial control. I understand it was taxation without representation. And the Boston Tea Party, oh, how many times I heard about the Boston Tea Party. I understood it was about the intolerable acts, the closure of Boston Harbor, and it culminated at the battles of Lexington and Concord. And I have an aunt and uncle that lived in Lexington and Concord. So every time we went to visit them, I heard the story about the battle of Lexington and Concord. But you know, as an adult, what I began to appreciate, which I didn't as a young person, was that the European colonists, all they wanted was personal freedoms, liberty, and equality. And that was their reason and rationale, despite all those other reasons for having a war of independence. But you know something that's really interesting? That's all the African colonists wanted as well. Personal freedoms, liberty, and equality. There was no difference between the two. And many of the African patriots, they also went to war for these very same reasons. But you know what was interesting that I found out as an adult, many of the men who were Americans of African descent enrolled and enlisted in the American Revolutionary War because they were told if you serve for one year, you will be manumitted, you will become free from slavery. And if you serve for three years, you'll be given bounty land. Oh my goodness, can you imagine the need that liberty and that freedom, you'll be given your freedom if you enlisted and you'll get land. Over 1,700 Americans of African indigenous descent from the state of Massachusetts alone joined in the war for independence, for freedom and land. Did you ever hear of such a thing? 
I never read that in the history books. I don't know if you did, but if you do your research now, it's all over the internet. Who knew? We now know. In Massachusetts, they were brothers in arms, white soldiers, black soldiers, European soldiers, African-American soldiers. They all believed in the same thing. They all represented the same thing and who they became and how they forged a new nation. Now, let me tell you how my genealogical journey started. Now, I had to preface this all by saying that I've been hearing this stuff since I was four years old. And every Sunday morning, we went on a different trip before we went to our grandparents' house. So when it came time to take a history test, I could do it blindfold because I knew the answer because I'd been there, done that. But let me tell you how I started my genealogical journey. And I have to admit, I was a selfish individual. I have to confess. When I went from my master's program, went the, last, the second to the last semester, I had it all planned out. I took the hardest courses I could take because I knew that last semester I was gonna take the easiest course I could take. And during my master's program at Boston University, that last course I decided to take was a course called the African-American Family. And those of you who have gone to big universities, you know what it's like when you're in this big hall of four or 500 students and the professor is sitting down in the well and they've got three or four associates working with them. And the first day of class, the professor went through all the stuff we needed to read. And I said, good Lord, this was not my intent. <laughs> but the last thing he said is that we're going to give a B plus, an A minus, and an A on a special project. And what we'd like for you to do is conduct an oral history of your family and see how far back you can go and write a paper. Click, click. Now I've been hearing about my family for the longest time since I was four years old. I probably could recite it. So I said, well, I'm gonna take advantage of this opportunity because I got three or four or six weeks before I can drop the course. So let me see if I can do this. So I talked to my maternal grandfather and I said to him, this is the assignment. And my maternal grandfather said to me, well, you know, my great aunts and uncles are still living. They're in their nineties. So I, as an early 20 year old, went out and started interviewing these 90 year olds who could take me to the early 1800s. Now, had I done this for any other reason, I probably would not have taken notes, but because I was doing this for a class, I took notes. And the lesson I learned from these elderly relatives, oh my Lord. I turned in my paper, and I didn't know how well I would do, but I was looking for those alternate classes I needed to get those three credits because I wanted to graduate in June. So when it came time for the big announcement, the person who got the B plus 
he wrote about his relative who was in the Tuskegee Airmen. I was furious because I had two of them. <laughs> Why didn't I write about the Tuskegee Airmen? I could have beat him because I had two of them. The person who got the A minus, you all know who he is. They called his name. Now he was good friends with my college roommate and I gotta admit, I didn't particularly care for him. <laughs> and I couldn't quite understand why he was selected, but his story was powerful. He interviewed his mother who talked about how her ancestors were killed in the Holocaust. I said, I can't talk that. And the person was Howard Stern. And he was not famous back then. And I was very jealous that he got that A minus. So all I could think about how I was going to drop this class. And then they called my name. I was shocked. And then they wanted me to come down and tell the story. And for 10 minutes, I told the oral story of my family. And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather was so proud and he asked me if I could write that up and put it in a pamphlet so he can give it away to the family as Christmas presents. And what I want you to do is see the first book of Freedom Road. And what I did is I wrote the genealogy of my family. And as a 20 year old, I got the family tree and you'll see nuts in the tree and you'll see bananas in the tree, you'll see sneakers in the tree and you'll see Christmas ornaments because to me, that's what my family represented every time we got together for Christmas. And this was the first book on Freedom Road. And I'm so honored that Peter talked about my book on Freedom Road and, and if you bought it, thank you very much. If you haven't, don't buy it. It was never designed for public consumption. I was always concerned that when I passed away, what would happen with all of this research that I did. So I put it all in this book for the family for years to come. And now it's been such a huge hit. It's now being rewritten. It probably will come out to the first of the year. So if you haven't bought it, don't buy it. Wait for the new and you the new version coming out. And that should have been the end of my family's story. I got my A, my grandfather got his book, and that should have been the end of it. Until my grandfather, my maternal grandfather called me in January of 1983. Now, those of you who are hotshots in the audience this evening or online, you may know of an attorney from New York by the name of Henry Thayer. He had very famous clients. And Henry Thayer from New York City called my grandfather and said that I had been asked to represent your family in a land dispute. And my grandfather couldn't understand why someone from New York City would call to represent the family in a land dispute. But there was somebody very famous who was compiling a number of lots on Martha's Vineyard and our family's lot stood in the way. And those of you who have traveled to Martha's Vineyard and are familiar with Moshop Trail, you know it's the most beautiful part of the entire island. The Atlantic coast is on one side and the bay is on the other side. 
Oh, is it a beautiful part of the island? Well, my family owned a large tract of land there. And this gentleman called and says, we have to do a pedigree on your family to check the <laughs> land title. Now, we raised puppies as teenagers, and I think that was my father's way for us to learn about the facts of life. So I knew about the American Kennel Association and all the requirements to do for AKA registration. But then I soon learned that this was the kind of pedigree that he was looking for, where you had to document mother to father to grandparent to great grandparents. We had to document the lineage of the family and the title on the land. So I asked the question, well, what are the one of the things you can do to verify your pedigree? And the gentleman says, after I talked to Henry Thayer, he says, you can apply to the Daughters of the American Revolution. It only takes a year and a half, two years to do that. And that's probably the length of time because we're going to go into a big legal dispute and it probably would take that long to do it. And as a young guy, no problem. I've done this document. I've got all of the documentation to several Revolutionary War soldiers because these elderly great, great aunts and uncles, they knew these people firsthand. They knew they served in the revolution. They knew their names. They knew everything. I said, no problem. I walked down to the Massachusetts Bureau of Vital Records. I get every birth, death, and marriage certificate all the way to the Revolutionary War. I didn't know any better. I didn't know people couldn't do this. And I didn't know that it takes a year, year and a half to, to apply to get certified to register. So on behalf of my mother, I sent this very formal application. Now, when you're young, you get money. I sent all these certified birth, marriage, and death certificates. They didn't get copies. They get the original registered documents. So here is my mother's application. And I provided birth, marriage, and death certificates for six generations. Who knew that most people can't do that? I didn't know that. But you know, something very interesting happened. That it didn't take a year and a half, two years. Her application was received on March 17th, 1983. And as you can see, it was approved on April 15th. 1983, because every birth, death, and marriage certificate was provided. And this was DAR's new application. And those of you ladies here or in the audience who were around in 1983, you're well aware how they froze all the applications because of a lawsuit. And many of the women said with this new application, nobody can meet this litmus test and here comes this woman with every birth, death, and marriage certificate in 1983. And that's why they approved it in that short period of time. And before I lose, you know, I get on a tangent, I need to tell you that that lawsuit that was about the land was about the land that's called Red Gate Farm, formerly owned by Jackie Kennedy Onassis consisted of 31 separate parcels on 366 acres. And that's who the attorney Henry Thayer was working for. 
Isn't that amazing? Now, the application that my mother submitted that it was approved in 30 days was for Private Caesar Russell, who is my fifth great grandfather, and he became the first American of African ancestry to be approved by the Daughters of the American Revolution. And my mother, Joan Cornwall Murphy, became the first woman of African ancestry to be approved by DAR. Isn't that remarkable? And you'll see an asterisk next to each of the names. And if you see an asterisk, that means that line has been approved. Now, Private Caesar Russell was not just any old private. I mean, hey, if he's an ancestor of mine, he's not just any old anybody. Private Caesar Russell was a personal servant to Captain William North, who at the time was aide de camp to the Prussian general Baron von Steuben. And those of you who know who Baron von Steuben is, he's a high mucket. He was the highest muckety muck in the Revolutionary War next to General Washington. And his picture that was taken of Captain William North was during the same time that Private Captain Caesar Russell, Private Caesar Russell was his servant. And those of you who know Captain William North, I'm not going to spread rumors here, but you know all the stories, so we'll let it go as it is. Which now takes me to book three, Forgotten Patriots. Now I got to talk about more and more about my ancestors because I'm on a roll here. I got to get you to dinner by eight o'clock. <laughs> I want to talk about my enslaved Clapp family. They were from Scituate, Massachusetts. And I know it was Cuffy and Flora Clapp who was my seventh great grandparents. And this is a very unusual couple and a very unusual story. And when Cuffy and Flora Clapp had their first son, they named him Cuffy Grandison. Now you notice their last name is Clapp and they named him Cuffy Grandison. And you know, something very interesting happened is that on the colonial records, the name Cuffy Grandison was crossed out and the surname Clapp was inserted. This is in the colonial records. Now, we can make all kinds of assumptions. We think that the owner wanted to make sure that he maintained his property rights. So he was not gonna have any name of the child that had to be Clapp. Because again, they were enslaved husband and wife and now enslaved child. And in case anybody may question, well, how does Rick know that? I think I need to show you the record. And you can see, this is the actual 1744 record where Cuffy Grandison, son of Cuffy and Flora Clapp, it's crossed out in the record and the name is inserted Cuffy Clapp, son of Cuffy Clapp and Flora, his wife born February 5th, 1744. Who can imagine going back to 1744? Who knew, who could imagine? But they didn't have just Cuffy. They had three other sons, Charles and Simeon. And I'm bringing their attention to you for a specific reason. But Cuffy served, who was my sixth great grandfather. He was a private in the Massachusetts Independent Company. And we know he enlisted on April 1777 and there's no end date. So we don't know when he left military service, but we know he served. 
But his brothers, Charles and Simeon, they're the famous ones. They both enlisted on February 14, 1777. They both served at the same time in the 11th Massachusetts Regiment under the command of Colonel Ebenezer Francis. And they marched from Western Massachusetts to Fort Ticonderoga. And those of you who are history buffs know where I'm going with this story. <coughs> Charles and Simeon were part of the July 6, 1777, Colonel Ebenezer Francis's rear guard where they retreated from Fort Ticonderoga, a very important moment in the American Revolutionary War history. Charles and Simeon were part of July 7th when Colonel Ebenezer Francis was shot and killed at the Battle of Monument Hill at Upperston. And when that happened, they became part of the famous Green Mountain Boys with Colonel Seth Warner. So they became Green Mountain Boys. Wow, 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 wow. And they were part of the late campaign when they stopped the British from splitting the colonies in two at the Lake Champlain and Hudson River. And that was the first divisive victory during the Revolutionary War at a small town called Bennington, Vermont. And how do we know this? It's in their military records. So they were part of England's general surrender at Saratoga. But that's not the end of the story. Charles and Simeon were prisoners of war for 18 months. Can you imagine what it was like to be an American of African descent during the Revolutionary War as a prisoner of war? And because we're getting ready to go to dinner, I won't tell you what their lives were like, but I thought I would show you a picture of the prisoner of wars for Vietnam. And we're all too familiar how our soldiers suffered as prisoners of war during Vietnam. These two emaciated men came back after war. And according to their nieces, who are my great grand aunts, they suffered tremendously as prisoners of war. And after the war, they became free, freed men because of their service, and they were given bounty land. And the land that the family lived on, they were able, as enslaved family, they were able to acquire that land. And I can't tell you too much more than that because that's the book I'm working on right now. So that's a plug for my next book that I know you all will purchase. But what's interesting, as I said to you, when Cuffy Clapp was born with the name Grandison, the surname Clapp was inserted instead all three brothers and their descendants changed their name from Clapp to Grandison. What an honor to their father to finally take the name he wanted his children to have. And they chose Grandison as their freed name and not the name of Clapp. Isn't that amazing? I said to you, it was an honor to be in this building, in this room, and standing on this floor, the same place where General Washington commanded the army, 
And, you know, I had to do a loose timeline because many of you may not know that he was in Boston and we say he was actually in Cambridge, but we say he was in Boston when he first commanded the army. And he arrived on April 14th in 70, uh, 1776. And, and he remained the commander of the army all the way to October 19th, 1781. So I wanna bring those dates to you. And they're not coincidental dates to me. 1776 and 1781. And they're not coincidental because my fifth great grandfather, Samuel Cornwell, was in the fifth New York regiment signed to General Washington. And he served from January 1776 to 1781, according to his military records. Isn't that unbelievable? And according to those records, he was with him at Valley Forge and all the way through to Yorktown. What an amazing feat. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Edward Gowen. And although he's not a Cornwall, Edward Gowen, he was a private at the second North Carolina regiment from 1778 to 1779. He was at the Battle of Guilford County Courthouse, Greensboro, North Carolina. But you know something interesting about Edward Gowen, and this may not mean anything to 99.9% .9 of you, but he was the fifth great grandson of John Gowen. And that name has no meaning to any of you, but John Gowen, yes, John Gowen was on the San Juan Bautista as one of the first and Gowens who arrived on August 25th, 1619 in Virginia. So if you wanna know about Quincy, Harold and I, we descend from John Gowen, the first Angolans, the first Africans who came to English America in 1619, who would have known? And I gotta talk about Benjamin Kane. He was a drummer boy, he enlisted I think he was supposed to be 13. He enlisted at 11 in 1776. And, and I got to show a drummer boy because outside of General Washington, drummer boys had to be the hardest job on earth because they were the ones that always got shot because they were the ones that led the, the, the troops going forward. But Benjamin Kane, you'll see an asterisk next to his name. That's who I came in under society under Benjamin Kane. But I told you when this, this, the Revolutionary War soldiers, when they left, they changed their names. So I came in under Benjamin Kane Brooker. And that's who I registered under with the General Society of the Sons of Revolution. Revolution. This brings me to book number four. Now, I got to talk about the legacy. So I think you got a good sense of, of my Revolutionary War patriots. And there's a whole lot more, but I'm limited on time. But what I want to do is show you Flushing and Harriet Cornwall. And both of them descended from Revolutionary War patriots, and they're my great great grandparents. Flushing Cornwall and Harriet Cornwall. But Harriet is Harriet Brooker Cornwall. And she descends from Private Cuffey Grandison, Private Benjamin Brooker, and Private Caesar Russell. 
And this is the only known picture of their granddaughter. And Samuel Conwell is no slouch. He descends from Private Samuel Conwell. And the Conwell line is a very long and distinguished line. And his mother was Native American. His father was descended from an English American. And this is Flushing Conwell. And he was named after Flushing, New York. Now, all of you know about the Massachusetts 54th. And if you don't, you remember the movie Glory. And yes, I get relatives who were in the Massachusetts 54th. And Pearl Ashport Brooks, who gave me so much information about her grand uncles, her husband was in the Massachusetts 54th. Can you imagine I met a widow of someone who was in the Massachusetts 54th? And directly across the street from the State House is the monument to the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. And she told me that this monument, they took a picture, and she told me the ancestors who I'm related to who are in that picture, and we don't have time, but I want you to know that my family's names are inscribed on the Civil War Memorial in Washington, DC, and you will find the names of Sergeant William Cornwall, Sergeant Aaron Jackson, and Private William Fraction. And again, Flushing and Harriet descended from Revolutionary War patriots, and their son, William Cornwall, served in the Massachusetts 5th Cavalry and was at the Battle of Petersburg and had his hand nearly blown off and was shot, according to his military record, five times in the back. And he was placed in the St. Petersburg Hospital, and they were very concerned about his safety in that hospital. And he was very strongly influenced by Frederick Douglass, who lived in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and the Cornwall line lived in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. He was best friends with Philip Douglass. There were only three sergeants in the cavalry, William Cornwall, Philip Douglass, and they both were shot in Petersburg. And if you saw the movie Lincoln, you saw where Frederick Douglass asked Lincoln to go to Petersburg and bring his son back to Richmond because they were afraid they were going to be killed in the hospital. So when Lincoln went to Petersburg, he brought back Philip Douglas and William Conwell. And that picture was taken the day he was at the hospital with Lincoln at Richmond Hospital. Now, his mother, who had two uncles who were badly treated, they didn't have photo IDs, they had nothing. So what she did is she took five locks of his hair and put it in a Bible. And you may be able to see it. She put it in the Book of Esther. And she felt that if anything happened to him, she could prove it was her son because he had his lock of hair. And you know what's interesting? I am in the possession of that Bible and have his lock of hair on the page of Book of Esther. And that is an 1857 New Testament family Bible very fragile, the last time it was open was on February 27, 2009, because all the pages are so brittle and I'm afraid the book will disintegrate. And as we come to a close here, you know, every book's gotta have an epilogue. So is my epilogue, while the Continental Army was an integrated racially during the Revolutionary War, it would not become integrated 170 years later during the Korean War in 1950. Can you imagine 170 years 
our army was a segregated army. And there were two men in particular that were part of that class that integrated the army. Harold Cornwall, 1950, and his brother Jack Cornwall, 1950, both men of the Korean War helped to integrate the army. Now, I know many of you are very much interested in another uncle of mine that he's just called Rear Admiral Larry Chambers to us in the family. We don't know him as any big famous guy, but he did help to integrate the US Naval Academy. He helped to desegregate the US military. He was the first African-American to command a Navy carrier squadron, first African-American to command an aircraft carrier, first African-American to serve as Naval aviator to attain the rank of Rear Admiral, and the first African-American to man, command a Naval carrier group. And he was the captain of the USS Midway during Operation Frequent Wind. Just minor details. <laughs> and those of you who may not remember the fall of Saigon, Larry Chambers was the captain of the USS Midway. And those of you who have been paying attention the last couple of weeks at the fall of Kabu, they kept making comparisons to the fall of Saigon. And everybody keeps showing this picture. But this is what Saigon looked like on April 29th to the 30th in 1975. And all these helicopters were getting out Americans and foreign nationals. And they were coming to USS Midway and look at all of the helicopters in the air. So from April 29th to 30th, 1975, the captain of the Midway got absolutely no sleep for 48 hours. He intently watched every helicopter land and every helicopter leave. And something happened on April 30th, 1975. And you can see it in his eyes. He was riveted to what was going on in the air. And that was the first time he didn't see a helicopter. He saw a plane in the air. He didn't know if it had a bomb, if they were going to try to uh, uh, do a kamikaze attack on the ship and have an explosion. But the pilot dropped a note on the plane and says, please clear the flight desk deck. I want to land so my wife and children and I can land on deck. They cleared the deck. They threw over helicopters. I'm sure those of you who are young enough to remember that happened. Um, they cleared the deck, successfully landed the plane, and they found out that this pilot had never landed on an aircraft carrier before. Men learn years how to fly a plane to land on a deck. And I just wanted you to show you that Captain Bung Lee, who was the captain with his wife and five children. Here he is in 2014. And you can see him where Rear Admiral Larry Chambers. And those of you who want to know more about this, you certainly can buy the biography. That was my second book that I wrote. And it's very important that as we begin to think about Revolution 250, 250 years and celebrating the Revolutionary War in just a few years, that we not forget the forgotten patriots. And let me tell you about the legacy of my Patriot ancestors now that I'm getting ready to wrap up. This is my grandfather, Harold Cornwall, who encouraged me to talk to my great, great uncles and aunts. Here's his, my great, great grandfather, my great, great grandparents. And this is an interpretation of what Private Samuel Cornwall 
my great-great-grandfather may have looked like. And I'm going to do this in reverse. Here's my grandfather, is Harold Carmel II. And I want you to know that Larry Chambers was not the only one that went to the Naval Academy. My cousin, Harold Carmel III, who's here this evening is also a graduate. And I want you to know that my god niece, Quincy Carmel, who's here in the audience, she is the 12th generation Cornwall in this country. 360, 379 years of Cornwalls in the United States of America. And I can't end this presentation because I am ending, those of you who are getting hungry, without showing a picture of my father and Joan Cornwall Murphy, who joined the DAR in 1983. Thank you. I hope this was interesting. I hope I kept you entertained. And I'm now ready for questions and answers. That was absolutely superb. Thank you so much. My and, pleasure. And we do have uh, some time for questions. And so, uh, oh, thank you. So before we do the questions, I want to present your Rosette oh, as a you. member of our society. And uh, thank you. So uh, we may have some questions that have come in online. Uh, we have obviously people here with questions. So um, I think we'll start with people here. And uh, if you have a question, uh, let's proceed. Sure, Scott. Scott, that's an unfair question. <laughs> I was not excited about American history at a young age because it was so repetitive for me. But as I became older, I really learned to appreciate what I had learned as a child because I didn't read any of this in the American history books. And what I heard at home, at my grandparents' houses, was something very different than what I read either as a child or as an adult. And that has somewhat inspired me in my later years in life to write about my family and my history because that's American history. And I think it's important that what I learned from my elders in the past, that I bring that forward to those going forward. So an unfair question, but a very appropriate question because it's so important that Americans of African descent learn about our ancestors and how we helped to build this United States of America. Yeah, uh, Rick, we were chatting earlier about what went on in this building called the, uh, the first trial, which I think is phenomenal. The British uh, emancipated or self-emancipated Blacks living in New York, but who had served for the British were then granted their freedom, 3,000 of whom in this building, which is amazing. But now I guess I have to center again. You mentioned uh, freeing uh, people who had served for the Americans after to what extent is your knowledge of that? Because I, as we think of mounting an exhibit of what the British did, 
I think it would be interesting to really know to what level we free the Americans free uh, people so that. Oh my goodness. General Washington, at the beginning of his term as commander in chief, <clears throat> found it rather odd to see the large number of black men in the Massachusetts militia. And as a southerner, he felt that black men should not have arms. But shortly thereafter, he changed his opinion. And it was General Washington that enacted the, the regulation that if any American of African descent wanted to join the American Continental Service after one year would be given their freedom and after three years would be given land. Now this was in response to what Lord Dunmore had done down in Virginia. And again, as I said, when the DAR published their book, I think it was in 91, they came up with 6,500 names. Some now estimate that close between 10 to 20,000 Americans of African descent served in the Continental Service. So I think this building, and again, as I mentioned, Revolution 250, not only did this building here publish the Book of Negroes, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that, those Americans of African descent who served for the British, they came here, provided their names before they went to Canada. So when you begin to realize that we have close to 40,000 Americans of African descent who either volunteered for the British side or the American side to get their freedom, that's an untold story. And I certainly hope the General Society embraces that and includes that in all of its program for Revolution 250. So we've got an online question and uh, that is, were there any loyalists in your family? Not to my knowledge. We were continental all the way. <laughs> there, there are some loyalists in some families of others, but well, I don't believe in mine. Not, not <laughs> and you have done such a level of research. I, I think that uh, we can rely on that. So, and, have... and, and if I might add, so when I hear people question patriotism, they certainly can't come to me with that argument. So we have one final question, and this is a question that uh, uh, is asked of everyone who speaks here. If you could dine with anyone, living or dead, here at Francis Tavern, who would it be? The Commander-in-Chief, George Washington. Excellent. I want to know what his thoughts were as a Virginian who really didn't travel outside of Virginia or Maryland. I wanted, I would like to know his views on slavery. I'd like to know what he thought when he went to Cambridge, Massachusetts and saw the large number of men of color under his command. And I want to know what he thought at the end of the war of the heroic service of the close to 10,000 men who served under him. I think that would be a phenomenal discussion, a phenomenal lunch or dinner. And I think I would thoroughly enjoy that. Thank you. And I feel like I was just at a Miss American pageant. <laughs> so, Rick, again, thank you so much.
Thanks for watching.